Yo. <laughs> Man, what's going um, on? What's up, man? I'm I'm hanging in there, man. I'm hanging in there. How are you? I'm good, man. This is uh, you, my, got, you got the whole suit. My, you got the mustache going. I like yeah. it. This is my, I, like I know. This my cor- this is my quarantine cut. Like I had to do it like in the house. I like it. That's what's up. How you, doing, bro? How you doing? I'm good. good. I'm good, man. I'm good. How's how's Detroit? Detroit's good. Um, you know, obviously we're dealing with the effects of the virus, um, you know, trying to get people to kind of understand the severity and its impacts. But overall, I think we're good. I think our governor, you know, uh, Gretchen's doing an amazing job. Yeah, I like I like her a lot. She's, yeah, she's doing a great job in terms of trying yeah. to you know maintain and maintain you know some semblance of sanity with the folks and yeah. and standing up to you know we're a militia state. So. <laughs> How so, that, how, how so that you're speaking to somebody who lives in Louisiana, so like <laughs> yeah, you got it. It's not even, you know, but uh, it's, it's it'll, it'll happen. We we just got to phase one in the next couple of days, so it's gonna be a minute. Um, it's warmer there now. The last time I was there, it was, oh yeah, bro. It's, oh my god, it was yo, but it was just snowing last week. It was just snowing last week. It, I don't, I I'm ready to move. So I was supposed to move before all this happened. Yeah, and um, yeah, that didn't work out so well because everything happened. So. Now I'm just waiting. I'm waiting for things to be over so that I can get the hell out of here. And you also, you also just maybe meant to be in Detroit. I don't know if the city's gonna let you. That leave. that you know what? Every time I'm about I'm to serious, dog. Like you, that, you, that you happened. left like five times to come back. Listen, man, we shall yeah. see. Um, well, thank you for joining me. I yeah. greatly appreciate it. Um, you're definitely someone that I've admired since our young. I've admired since our younger days. So I'm happy to uh, be interviewing you for this podcast. And thank you for coming on. Um, I guess we'll start just like start with just like telling folks that are in here, like, you know, who you are and kind of how you got your start in politics. What 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 did you study in school and what made you? Were you always interested in politics? Um, You know, how did it how did you get to that to that place? How did you arrive, you know, in politics? Yeah, no. So I I was one of those kids who just wanted to do politics my entire life. So (laughs) when, when when I was little, my dad would be like, oh, who are we voting for? You know, this go around. I'm like, uh, I don't know. So as the more he started asking me to decide on who our family was voting for, the more I got to politics. And so I started taking it very seriously. And the, the very first sort of person that, uh, that I kind of really fell in love with in my city was the constable. And so he came to my school, did a little talk about public service. He was running for re-election. And then I was doing a little project. And so I pulled out the phone book. Uh, I don't know if you guys even remember what that is. Big ass phone book. <laughs> you always so, think about that the other day. Like there are gonna be kids who like don't even understand like yeah. what a phone book is. Like going to your mom's purse, like, hey, give me my pocketbook. I need yes. yes. So I pulled out the phone book and I just called him and I was like, hey, this is Heinrich Jr. I'm doing a project on someone who's in public service. Can I do it on you? I want to ask you like five questions. He's like, yeah, sure. Did the project fourth grade and ever since then I've been just sort of inching more toward kind of serious politics, uh, but it's been evolution. So you, I mean, you talked about school a bit, and, and you, of all people, know uh, that, that Morehouse is a, is a great place, a great incubator for individuals yeah. who both want to run for office and those who, like me, uh, run campaigns and work in, in politics and uh, in communications and different other facets. And so- yeah, it's, a, it's a breeding ground for that. I think yeah, uh, yeah. just the way yeah. we weigh, um, you know, from dorm elections to like SGA and just and Casa, which you were a part of, like all those, all those types of things, like are, are, it's kind Wait, of. A... Anytime you have uh, Maxine Waters' grandson on your left and the Honorable John Cunningham's son on your right, it's kind of hard not to uh, to see that as as a good place to to kind of make those connections. But I think just even more than the connections, I think what's really important is, you know, look, I studied econ in college and French from Louisiana. But I always knew that I was going to work in politics, uh, regardless of, of what uh, what happened. But when we finished, you know, 2010, 2011, 2009, you know, that was a crazy time. And so I came back home and, you know, I knew, like, look, I called the, the mayor of the time, Kip Holden. He was the first uh, black mayor of Baton Rouge, where I grew up. And I was like, look, I'm coming home. I want to get in. What, what should I do? And so he said, look, I'm going to send you to these three people, you know. And so it kind of started from there, and then that kind of put me in some real uh, political lanes. 
So what was the first campaign you worked on? And could you describe how you went about getting involved with the said campaign? Is that what you were just speaking? Yeah. About? Yeah. So like, no, like, no, well, even beyond that. So Kip Holden was mayor of, of Baton Rouge for three terms, 12 years. And so when he ran for mayor, I was like, oh, my God, maybe in sixth grade. And so my dad, uh, who is sort of a helicopter dad a little bit, um, who's super important in my life, but my dad, yeah. like, I, I expressed like one time, like, dad, I want to, uh, you know, run for office or I want to be in politics. Like, okay, cool. This, and he just went, he just kind of went with it and, and kind of connected me with uh, who, the mayor who had gone to high school with my grandmother. You know how these towns are. He yeah. Went to high school with my grandmother at the time. So he was running for mayor. He's going to be the first black mayor. He had run before. So we we're excited. So I started just working on that campaign as a, as a little volunteer in middle school and, 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 and kind of coming full circle, Kip Holden, you know, kind of restarted my like grown up career as well. You know, it's interesting, yeah. So, where do I want to go with this? Okay, so you're working on this campaign and you've been a part of a number of campaigns. So for someone like yourself who's been involved in successful ones, some of them like you haven't, it's still successful in terms of spreading the message, but like maybe the candidate doesn't win or doesn't, you know, you don't reach- I've been on, come on. Huh? I <laughs> no, I, I want to- <laughs> Because no, no it, I think it, this is like yeah. it's part of what this these conversations that I'm having are kind of about is like how are you how do you define success right because sometimes you don't and, and no matter in in life you know sometimes you don't always get what you want you don't always win you don't always you know somebody buys the house that you want and now you're you know your offer wasn't the right one so for someone like yourself um, who many people would call successful very very much so like in, in terms of your accomplishments how would you how do you define success um, you know whether it's within a campaign or for yourself and, and, and when you're working in these spaces, how do you define it? I think, I think it's easy for me. So I, I think for just globally, I think success is when you can, when you, when you have enough happiness, enough money, enough access, enough experience where you can reach back and, and help at least five other people. So I think until you can do that, you're not really successful. You're just still working on yourself. You're still trying to figure out how you get your success. So I think, for me, over the last year uh, in particular, I, I really kind of enjoy. I have a mentor, a mentee who was at Tulane, a uh, young black kid who's in politics, and and some cousins and all these things. And I think it's important for for you to define your success about how much you can do for other people, not like the trophies you get for yourself. You know? Okay, that makes sense. I, I will be, I will be honest. I like trophies, and so you know, I'm not even gonna even lie about that. And when you think about, you talk about some of the campaigns, you know, like. One of the big, biggest losses of my life, your life, many people's lives, 2016, Hillary Clinton. Right. Spent, you know, two years working with Hillary Clinton, running around President Clinton and trying to make sure that Hillary was the president. We were unsuccessful. But two things happened. I think you're, you kind of alluded to this. It was like one professionally, you're like, oh, shit. Like, I lost a campaign. I don't have a job. Like, I got laid off. You know? Yeah, that leads to my next question. That's yeah, that actually, that's a phenomenal segue. So how do you, you lost the campaign, you got to pick yourself up, you need your next job. How do you pick yourself up and move on to the next project after spending yeah. so much time on a race like that, right? You're super invested. I mean, you traveled with her to over 40 states, 100 some odd cities, 100 plus cities. How do you pick yourself up and keep going when you're so, so much time and energy has been so deeply invested into, you know, not only a person, but like a cause that you truly and firmly believe in? Doug, when I, when I got back from the campaign, I like spent 35 days on my parents' couch. <laughs> and I'm, I'm serious, I, I gotta get a haircut, which is like not a quarantine haircut, but like a no, no haircut. Right. Um, you know, my cousins are checking in on me, my sister. And then one day my dad came up and he was like, and my dad, like, this is kind of a revolving thing. Like, my dad's like super important. So he came up to me and he was like, look, I understand that you had a, a fairly tragic experience just recently but you got to get your ass up and go do something. And I was like, okay. I was like, what should I do? He's like, well, we just elected the, new, the first female mayor of Baton Rouge. And this was back, you know, at the end of 2016, which was like a glimmer of hope. And so I went down there and I was trying to figure out a way, like, you know, if I can't take uh, Hillary Clinton all the way to the finish line, at least we can take someone like Sharon Weston Broom, who's already been elected first female mayor of Baton Rouge and help her with a transition and sort of uh, spend time just sort of just recalibrating and kind of figuring out what I want to do. And then I was like, you know what? I've done this. Now I'm a glutton for punishment. I want to go back all in. So I went to Georgia and, and worked on Jill Hossop's campaign. So what was that experience like? Uh, we lost. Uh, 
Okay. No, I'm not even gonna, no, John Lasso is an awesome guy. He's actually running for, uh, for Senate right now uh, against uh, Amor's brother, uh, Rafael Warnock, uh, who, who's, who I think is going to be a good uh, Democratic nominee for us. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, think about this. Like, you, like John, like you, you've, been, you've been in politics like your entire life, and particularly like those sort of elections. Like, you know yeah. that. When you're in the district and when, when it's irrespective to what's happening in Texas, what's happening in California, when it's just what's happening in your district, that's like, that's the thing, you know? And mm -hmm. so it was all eyes on the sixth district of Georgia. And you had this young, this young guy who never run for politics before, Don Ossoff, well-spoken, smart, connected to John Lewis and a few other, uh, Sanford Bishop and those kind of guys, tomorrow's brother. Um, but it was also a time where people were still reacting to 2008 and 2016. And mm -hmm. so John represented what, they, what, what the Nancy Pelosi's of the world and the Hillary Spell campaign in a lot of ways that, that just hurt him. And then the sixth district, who Lucy McBeth, the honorable Congress lady who now represents that district, honorably, uh, she would have won that, you know, just two and a half years ago when, when John lost. And so it's, it's interesting how politics build on, on each other. But it was, it, was, it was a good experience, but we lost it. And that, that was not fun. So going back to uh, Hillary for America campaign, uh, what was it like working on such a big stage and like being like kind of, I mean, you're on the, you're running the advanced team and, you know, you're doing all these things for her and, and, and former president Clinton. What is it like working on that big stage and carrying so, so much responsibility and kind of not only kind of answering to her, but also you're, you're coordinating a large group of people to make sure things go right for her. Yeah, no, I, th I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. You know, when you think about it, like you know, I when I, I look, and you're watch, what like uh, you're twenty, you're what you're like twenty eight, twenty seven. No, no, like, I'm 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 an official grown man. I'm thirty two now. No, 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 I'm not. Oh, good, about good. Yeah, I was happy. I was twenty six, turned twenty seven. Yeah. And and look, I, I I'll be honest with you. We'll talk about this in a second. But you know, the mayor Mitch Landrew, who who demands a high quality, a high caliber, who demands excellence, kind of put me in a position where I was prepared for that stage in some ways. But you can never be prepared for it. Anytime Hillary Clinton walks into the door. I did press, you know, she walked to my door, she sat down, either she was going to go live with CNN or Fox News or ABC. I mean, dog, you're sitting there and you're watching when Hillary Clinton's actually explaining why she wiped her emails. And you're like, oh, this is going to be a consequential. This, this interview is consequential. And you think about just little things like making sure the camera works, making sure that you have, you know, you're in the right place. You can hear like, all those sort of things kind of affect, like maybe we did it too much and we were too perfect. But all of those things affect how people see your campaign. And so we got to think about all of that. So once Hillary Clinton walks in the door, it's ready for her because she's got to think about there are 30 million people are going to see her by sitting in that one spot. And I got to make sure that I'm thinking about how she's thinking about that 30, 30 million people. So how did that experience, I guess, thinking, that, thinking through those things, how did that Im impact you professionally and personally? Yeah. Right? Yeah. How did that? Personally, it was, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty much, it was, it was amazing. It was also a disaster. You know, like, I, I don't think, so people don't realize when you, when you work on political campaigns of that, of that nature, uh, from Senate to governor to presidential, if you're moving around the country or traveling around the country, you, you have to give up a lot of your life. You know, you give up a lot of like, so for two years, I didn't see, I didn't see anybody. Like I saw my parents twice. I saw, you know, like my significant other at the time, like three times, you know, like my friends, like I, like I lost friendships and I'm still like trying to rebuild uh, because you have like, that's the amount of sacrifice that it requires, particularly when you think about that scale of campaign. And I was like, I told my family and my, I was like, look, this is the most important thing. Professionally, I've always wanted to work for Hillary Clinton. I wanted, this is what I want to do in my life. But personally, I mean, we couldn't like Donald Trump, you know? And so I, so I went all in. So it was, it was hard, but it was, it was amazing. Uh, but professionally, I, I talked to my, my friend, Steven Kopechka, about this all the time. He, he and I worked on the campaign together. He was uh, in a similar role, at the same role as I. And one of the things that you know, we, we did was when we go to these cities, when you get a press list of the local press that's on the ground, you, you, know, you take that and you make sure you save it and you make a master list. And so for at least four or five years until those lists kind of go uh, and become antiquated, you have a master list of at least 40 states, 100 and something cities of the press. So if you call me, John, you're like, hey, dog, uh, who's, you know, who, who, who writes you know, in Detroit? 
I'm like, oh, I know, I know this person on that beat. You know, that becomes valuable. So professionally, you kind of build your, your, your portfolio based on going to these cities, one. And two, when you go to these cities, you got to have like, you got to think about the potential of living there or, or running a campaign there. When I came to Detroit, you and I sat up and around for like six hours and talked about like Detroit, you yep. know? <laughs> and so like, that's what I do when I go to a lot of these cities. I would like learn about these cities, learn about what's going on, learn about their people. And so whenever it all started coming together, I knew the mayor, I knew the some city council people, I knew, you know, so it kind of, it's helpful in your, in your, in your professional career because, you know, you spend time doing that. To that point, speaking of coming to Detroit, it seems, I guess this is kind of more, this is a very specific question, but it seems that the Clintons and the Clintons have a very strong connection to Detroit. I, I kind yeah. of observe that. What is that? I've always, I mean, yeah. I, I have, a, I, I, I not want to speak on it because I, I have a personal relationship. Well, no, that's like, that's crazy that you even asked that question because. No, but like, I don't, I mean, like, well, I, like, I, I don't even like, like, I, have, I have that personal relationship. So I don't even like, I, it's almost kind of in my mind separate. You know what I mean? But so like, what is, what is, what is the deeper you, connection? You and I had this conversation, I think, uh, right after your dad passed away and thinking about how your dad was a gateway for a lot of America to Detroit. Mm -hmm. And so when President Clinton ran for, for president the first time, he go, he go to these places, your dad's a congressperson, you know, he, he, he meets people who, who seem like him from Arkansas, down home people, people who are, you know, not trying to, uh, you know, it's not like New York and DC, you know? Right. And so that's one thing. And then two, they spent a lot of time there, you know, like they, they've literally been there like a million times. And so when you mm -hmm. So many times, like I said, you know the mayor, you know the city council member. Like you go, you you know when Gretchen ran for for senate, you know you go for that, and then you go again when she runs for governor, and then you go when she is governor, and then you build a lot of cachet with right. uh, with the local population, and you just feel comfortable there, you know. And so when we were, when we were there at the time, you know, you have people come, and they will come and say hello, like not even on camera, not even on stage, just to come and say hello to uh, to the Clintons. So you've worked all around the country with like, you know, super prominent people. Um, the list goes on and on. Uh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna name drop, but someone who's worked kind of in the rarefied area that you have, you know, most people go to a lobbying job in DC or they go get some job, whether it's uh, in political affairs on Wall Street or they go, you know, do something else on the Hill. What made yeah. you come back? What made you go back home and, you know, yeah. get so involved um, in New Orleans and yeah. Louisiana. Yeah, no, I, no, actually, I mean, I thought a lot about that. You know, when you're, when you're 25, 26, 27, I mean, a lot of who you are is defined about how much money you make and how much money you can make, obviously. And so, but look, even when I left in 2006 to go to college, I knew I was going to come home. Like, I'm a homeboy. Like, I, like the, my favorite politicians, aside from Deval Patrick and, and people like that, are Louisiana politicians. Like, like Mitch Landrew was a legislator when I was a kid, and then he became lieutenant governor. I interned for him. Like, and so I always knew I was going to come back. But, you know, like, Louisiana's been at the bottom of a lot of rankings for a long time, you know? And so mm -hmm. I, I thought, a lot of my friends I went to high school with thought it was important to go outside of Louisiana, get education, get experience, and then come home, and then give that back to, uh, to your own city. And it was easy because Mitch Landrieu was the mayor at the time and he was rebuilding New Orleans. New Orleans was completely decimated during Hurricane Katrina. And so we had an opportunity with that mayor to reimagine how you do government and how you how your culture, uh, you know, operates in the city. So it was pretty cool. So speaking of Mitch Landrieu, um, you know, he's a trailblazer in his own right. Um, and you've worked with him as well as the current mayor, uh, Latoya Cantrell. How would you compare your experiences, you know, working in both administrations? Totally different. Look, so a couple things. You got to think about timing. And mm -hmm. let me give you like a little backstory. You know, like I like to give a little, little political history. So please, please. Latoya Cantrell is the first female mayor of New Orleans in 300 years. New Orleans from 1972 until 2010 had had only black mayors. Like, which is rare for, for most cities around the country, particularly in the South. Yeah. And, and on top of that, the last white mayor in 1972 in that era was Mitch Landrieu's dad, Moon Landrieu. 
And so when Mitch came and became mayor in 2010, Mayor Lynch became mayor, that was sort of a bookend to a long storied history of black mayors, black political power building in New Orleans. And so when Mitch had it, he had to do a couple of things. He had to like make sure he didn't like squash or, 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 or kind of like make sure he didn't, uh, oh guys, make sure that he didn't, he didn't uh, step on political power in New Orleans for black people, make sure that the neighborhoods were still getting access that they were supposed to get and so forth and so on. And so that was like kind of his task. When Latoya Cantrell became mayor just two and a half years ago, first female mayor, city council member, you know, community background, and it was, it was just a different kind of mayor that was coming in, for one. And then two, look, from a personal experience, Mitchell Andrews is a white man, Latoya Kitro is a black woman. I had never worked for a black person of that level in my entire career before, up until that point. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was just a different experience, you know? Like having a black woman be your boss and also be the mayor of the city was like, and, and, and not to be, you know, even, you know, weirdly gendered, but it was like both having you know, your, your mom as, as the, the tough cop parent and your mom as the nurturer, uh, as your boss and as the mayor. And that's awesome, you know, and it was different. And you can see how, how people are starting to respond, not saying better, but differently to, to this mayor because she's so people, people focused, you know? Yeah. So on that topic, um, you know, you have your, your, your career to this point has intersected and you know you've you've crossed paths with you know a, a, a good number of trailblazers um do you feel the candidate draws you to the campaign or is it more the ideals or is it a little bit of both yeah no it's it's, it's, it's a little bit of both i mean look look like nobody wants to lose like mm -hmm. i mean i'm like look as, as 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 sincere as i am as sincere as i want to come off look i like to win and Politics is a sport and a profession for me. And I enjoy it. Very much so. so. when you think about candidates, like, look, I, I think about people who can win, but people who have policy that connects with people, you know? I, I, I'm very clear about where I stand. You know, I'm a Democrat. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty progressive, middle progressive, you know? And so I like candidates that are like that. I like candidates who are pragmatic, but candidates who are people first, you know? And so that's kind of a big, a big part of it. It is personal. But I, I do want to win. I, I think we all want to win. That's yeah. that's that we, we don't we don't do it to spin our wheels. I took uh, I took my my uh, congressional my, my campaign loss very hard, for sure. What are you drinking? Yeah. What are you What are you drinking right now? Makers, makers. Oh, I wish I wish I had that. I just got this Modelo here. Cheers, though. Yeah. Cheers, Brody. Um. So could you give us a brief explanation on the United States Conference of Mayors? Uh, having worked with, you know, yeah. uh, Mayor Cantrell, how does that correlate to your role as Director of Federal Affairs now in, your, in the position you have now? So, well I, well, I was just, I was Director of Federal Affairs for her. But yeah, I, for, I'm sorry. I, I left and went, and went private, but we won't talk about that today. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a, good, I'm a, I'm a good Democrat. Um, look, so, look, a lot of, so going back to, President Obama in 2008, who is, I think, one of the greatest presidents ever in the history of America. Um, I wasn't, uh, uh, I didn't vote for him in the primary in 2008, as you, as you know. But even as good as Obama was, as amazing as he was, he was really bad at politics. And so uh, Howard Dean, and this is like kind of, a, I'm not even going to be too long, but Howard Dean started the state strategy before that. And once, a big, once Obama became president, he kind of divested in state parties and invested in Obama for America and started his own personal uh, grassroots organization. And so what happened was a lot of the big cities kind of stepped up because Washington, Obama was kind of not really communicating as much with the mayors in the cities. Congress was completely, you know, I mean, you know, your dad was there. I mean, like, I mean, there was just nowhere to move because the, the Republicans had come in and they had won. Uh, taken over, and so the mayors kind of stepped up and became like kind of these like like these bigger than life uh, personalities. And so you think about Mayor of L.A. Eric Garcetti, the former mayor of Chicago, uh, Rahm Emanuel, who had been the chief of staff to Obama in the first administration. Uh, Bill De Blasio, how do you feel about him? Bill De Blasio, mayor of New York. You know my mayor, mayor of New Orleans. Mike Nutter, mayor of 
uh, Philadelphia at the time, by Lyle, you know, mayor of, of, of Charlotte. And so all these mayors, and, and, and not just Democratic mayors, Republican mayors too, but I don't remember any of their names because I don't get paid to ruin their names. <laughs> um, and so uh, all, all these mayors kind of essentially used the organization to lobby in, 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 uh, in D.C. on behalf of the organization, on behalf of mayors, on behalf of cities. Because when you think about it, like over 70% of the population in America lives in cities. Like rural yeah. America is important. Like it's, so, it's super important. But most people live in New York, Philadelphia, Houston, L.A., Chicago, you know, those kinds of cities. And so these mayors understood that. And, 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 and it gives also the mayors, look, think about it. Bill de Blasio ran for president. Pete Buttigieg, who's a lovely human being, the mayor of a city that's like the size of my block, ran for president because the platform he was given when he was coming to mayors. And so this was something that he was working on for years, four years ago, using this platform, you know, going to Congress all the time, going to DC, you know, you know, being in these different cities. When I, when I worked for Mitch, you know, there was one time when we were thinking about it and I went to five different cities in one year that were not my, it was not my city, you know? And so you right. get a, a lot of experience like that when, you, when you're a mayor, when you're, when you're a U.S. Congress Mayor's participant. And I think Buttigieg is an example of that, uh, you know, Rahm Emanuel and Bill de Blasio, those guys. Hmm. Very interesting. Okay. Um, you also do a little dabbling in the entertainment business. Can you, uh, what, I mean, I know your passion is politics. What made you interested in entertainment? I, mean, I guess we all have entertainment yeah. uh, and interest in entertainment, but what is, you know, what's your interest in entertainment and, you know, how much of that, how much of, that, of your time does that take up? And, you know, how does that factor into like your long-term goal? Yeah. So look, so you went to Morehouse, I went to Morehouse. <laughs> they, they preach this Renaissance man philosophy like crazy. And you're like- The Welsh. Right, exactly. Like, look, I'm, I'm a political, yeah, that's like, that's who I am, that's what I do. But I also realized that I, I enjoy music, enjoy concerts, festivals, events, you know, all of those sort of things that, that you don't think about, you know, when you are so myopic with your, with your career, it's, you know, medicine or whatever. Um, and so when I got back from the, that campaign, I just started work. Well, actually, even before that, my friend, actually my boy just joined uh, Charles Phipps. So Charles had, had, a, uh, had a band, uh, Freedom Speaks, back uh, pre-Hillary Loss. Mm -hmm. um, and we were working on just some cool things, just some cultural things in New Orleans. You know, Charles had gone, to, had gone to college here and his wife had gone to college here. I was moving back here and we were just kind of this young black collective who was, you know, really interested in sort of the culture aspect of our professional selves. And so that's kind of how I got interested in it. Mm -hmm. One, and then two, look, for a smart guy, smart woman who, you know, does business or politics, you know, when you talk about managing someone, managing a candidate or managing a, a rapper or, or managing a photographer or managing a DJ or whatever, a lot of those components are, are the same. The thing that's right. different, the thing that slapped me in the face is realizing that the industries uh, call, and, you know, I called you like a thousand times, you know, back in, in 2007, 17, 2018, when we were talking about Baron the Great and, and yeah. getting up and running off the ground and all of that. So understanding that industries have some similarities, but you have to be respectful of, of the of the things in the industry that's specific to it. Because if you're not, you're gonna get knocked in the you're gonna get knocked in the face. Like I got knocked in the face and and look and you know and, and spend a lot of time like not listening to Baron and telling Baron what to do. And like he's like, no, this is what I do. Listen to me, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. Um those two feels like until that point, politics and entertainment kind of intersect um they intersect a great deal. Um, yeah. How does that kind of? Well, go ahead. I think I think the perfect example. Look, I'm a, look another reason why I came to New Orleans, uh, back home because New Orleans is just like a cool place. Like any, any Super Bowls, Essence, like all the things that you do in in these big cities, they come here to my city. So I get access to all of these big time people and and and, and things because I live in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And so, for instance, Michelle Ebanks. Yeah, you know, who who's the former president CEO of Essence? Uh, this, is, this is her last year. You don't think about how 
important it is for her to have good politics, how important it is for her to have connections to the mayor, to the governor, to how important for her to have briefings and interviews and things like that. So once I realized that big executives like Michelle Lee Banks, you know, Ted Turner, those kind of people, you know, Steve Case, those kind of people of the world, they want the same level of support, the same level of, of, of operation as a politician. Mm -hmm. So once I realized that it was sort of easy for me to make that transition and build that bridge to go from politics, entertainment, and kind of merging the two. Because if I'm good at politics and you want to have access to that, so therefore I'm, you know, I already have an inherent benefit to you. Absolutely. You know? um, so how, where do you see yourself in, I mean, quarantine kind of puts the time, affects certain timelines, but you know, do you see yourself in an elected role? What, what ultimately do you, do you see yourself doing over the next, you know, three to five years or even one to three years in the, in the political sphere? Yeah, I, don't, I, don't know. I know you're in the private side, so we won't, we won't touch on that. We don't want to touch yeah. on Greater New Orleans. <laughs> no, I, uh, it's so funny because I actually, I to, I'm like a hired political gun and I work for the Greater New Orleans business community. And it's interesting because I, I spent a lot of time strategizing how to counteract some of my own personal politics. Mm. Um, so I'm gonna leave it there. It's a very, it's, it's a very interesting dynamic. Uh, but oh, think, listen, listen. In my in, in my role as you know in finance, <laughs> it's one of those things where <clears throat> you are at odds sometimes with you know what you believe, but that's your job, right? My job is is you know. My job is apolitical. My job is, you know, it doesn't have religion, right? So, like when I'm yeah. when we're when we're talking about strategy or trades or investing, it it's it they don't it, it's it 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 definitely has me conflicted. I don't mean to make this about me right now, but it makes me conflicted because it's not it doesn't it doesn't see people as much as it sees numbers, right? Everything no, is no. numbers, and what, how does this? What's the bottom line? On this? So well, this is something that you and I were talking about when I was in Detroit last. You know, like you always have to have, and, and if you're fortunate, it, it's not going to be as difficult. You're, a base skill, a base job, a base salary, a base access to enough money to pay for your life. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, one of my mentors, Ryan Bernie, who was the deputy mayor of New Orleans, you know, worked for Mitchell Andrew for a long time, Mary, worked all around the world, with, you know, worked for the prime minister of Israel. One thing he told me whenever I first came back to New Orleans is, look, I know you're interested in politics. You need a niche because your niche is going to make sure you're viable, you know, for a campaign and also for a private organization. And so I chose communications. He happened to have been, the, you know, the press secretary at the time and then comms director and deputy mayor. And so I've spent a lot of time with him and, you know, with Mitch and, and those guys, like learning how to be that, learning how to have that skill. And so in my current job, I essentially get paid to use that skill from our organization, you know? Gotcha. So, so that's one thing. So it's important when you're, when you're doing campaigns to have uh, something that you can do because mm -hmm. look, campaigns don't pay a lot. And they're, and look, you can, you can be on a special election campaign the last four weeks, or you can be on a Hillary Clinton style campaign the last four, you know, almost 22 months. Right. You know? And so you gotta just make sure you have access to your, just some, some capital access to a job, access to something to keep you going. When you're not campaigning. So what's next for you? What do you? What's? The, the oh big, yeah, I was, I, was trying, I was trying to skip over that. I was trying to hope that you that you forgot. Oh uh, no, I'm not, I mean, I, I mean, um, even even if you stay on the surface, you know, like, yeah. is it? Do you? It doesn't have to be specific. Do you have? Are there ambitions? Do you consider running for office? What type of office would that be? I mean, full disclosure, I've been looking. I've been. I have been looking at. Okay, who's term limited? Should I go for state senate? Should I go for state rep? Or you know, like. What, yeah. I, I've I've been doing it, so hey, yeah. we can we can have a candid, a very candid conversation. Yeah, I, no, I think uh, look when you think about that, think about Terry McAuliffe, like somebody who understands politics and understands the game really really well, and is behind the scenes doing it. But at some point, I think emerges as you know a candidate emerges as someone who runs for office. I think anybody who is like a, a political like me who says that they're not interested in potentially running for office is lying. You know, like I, you know, not, yeah, of course. You know, when it comes down to what you say, um, I'm a big uh, believer in, 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 in steps and, and I'm a big believer in, in preparedness. 
And so I think, you know, if you, when people run for office, I don't think that people should go and run for, you know, Senate or governor or Lieutenant governor or, or whatever first, you know, I think you should go and see, look, city council, state legislatures, you know, other uh, state offices, uh, Congress, depending on what district you're in, all those are offices, you know, depending. Well, man. Something local to answer your question. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess we can open it up to uh, the Q&A. Uh, if anybody on the live has questions, click that little question mark down there um, and drop your questions in if you have anything for myself or Haima, um, and we can answer those. And then, you know, if not, I'll let you get back to quarantine, man. So one of one of my one of my friends uh, texted me when we posted this flyer the other day, and he goes, "Wait, is that John Cunningham's son?" I'm like, "So yeah, just like for a second, like just personal privilege, John. Can you just like some of my friends who who don't who don't know you down here in New Orleans are watching this, give us just like a little a little spill uh, about you and your your, your family?" Um, well, I'm John Cunningham III, uh, born and raised on Detroit's West Side. Um, well, I went to Morehouse College um, briefly. Uh, I do not have a collegiate degree, but I'm a partner in a hedge fund, uh, former songwriter, uh, also uh, a, a film producer, and uh, yeah, um, failed congressional candidate. First time political candidate. First time, that's it, not fail, first time. <laughs> first time political candidate, one time political candidate. Look, I, um, I, I want to be as respectful of the, the Congress lady as possible, dog. I'm going to tell you this, but like, I am watching her, I'm watching the district like a fucking hawk. Like, like a fucking hawk. Like, I'm, I'm serious, bro. Like, like Detroit is, I mean, that, that district is, is, a, is a big deal, you know? And I, I'm, you know, she's, you know, well, you know, you know how I feel about it. That's, that's yeah, it. no, I think, I mean, I'm, she, I mean, I think, I don't think she's naive, so I'm, I'm sure she knows that, like, I, I very much so intend to run it. I don't, I'm not a person, like, I don't need to keep close to the vest, like, she knows what time it is. Like, okay, you got me, I'm happy for you, clap, 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 and she's doing a, a respectable job. But yeah. I think that there are things that I have to do on my part to, you know, not only raise my profile, but um, kind of, while I know the job, demonstrate to people that I know the job and coming from a coming from a place of having always controlled my own destiny, whether that was songwriting or having a consulting firm to now um, having being a part of my own hedge fund, like I don't have really have a boss, right? And so yeah. me saying like, oh no, I want to run for Congress not only because you know it's something that my dad and I talk about privately, right? It's also something that I've excuse me always desired to do for you know or not always, but have desired to do for at least a decade. Um, I think part of it was like, part of it is uh, kind of humbling myself to say, hey, like people want to see that you have a passion for it and you can do the work and you know how to do the work. And so I, I kind of had to accept that. And like, I'm willing to like, okay, that's, that's valid. I'll do that if that's what y'all want me to do. Cause like, that's what y'all want me to do. So like, yeah, we can, I'll go there and I'll crush it. I'll knock out the park so that I can do the thing that I want to do and really like, be uh you know an advocate part of part of my passion for it is that like you know i some of the people that we have that represent re represent people that look like us have been there you know for x amount of time and they've represented us well but what i care about is like you know my dad may have been who he was but like uh, my mom's side of the family is still very much in the hood and yeah. like the people that are in congress don't have big beards and cornrows you know like they don't look like me they don't look like where my family comes from. And that's like, that's across the country, right? Yeah, I, I, I was gonna tell you that, I like the corn rolls. I appreciate that. Like that's, that, that to me is like, when we talk about representation, representation is more than just skin color. It's also like literally image. Like how do you, yeah. how do you carry yourself? In what way do you carry yourself? How do you like, your point of view, yeah. Yeah, your point of view, how do you talk? Those type of things matter to me. And that is also, I mean, that's, that's part of my motivation for running. We do have yeah, questions. Your, 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 your brother Gary Johnson's laughing at you. He was laughing at me? Yeah, I think so. He ain't laughing at me. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what was funny. But Haima, <laughs> what is the proudest moment of your career? Big or small victory? This is from Aranita18. Oh, oh, Aaron. Hey, Aaron. Um, I don't know. I think it's 
it's it's kind of a, a day, kind of an all-encompassing day that I like. Kind of felt that I was doing well one day, and it was kind of coinciding. I, my cousin Sonia, who I think is watching this, she was with me, so we we're in New York, June seventh or something like that, when Hillary had come nominee mm -hmm. for the party, and I'm sitting there and it's like fucking thirty thousand people, all this Hillary coming, like whatever, and my like my cousin who I grew up with in Baton Rouge who like saw me like as a as a child was with me as I was working on a campaign for the, of this caliber and it was like it was just crazy like you know and, and so that's just kind of one of the I think Aaron one of the biggest like accomplishments of, of my career is standing there with my family and it's sort of like relishing that moment okay uh we got three questions we have three questions um from Baron the Great Who's your favorite politician of all time? That's number oh. one. Oh my God. So, okay. So my, <laughs> this is like, this is, this is controversial. Okay. So my, I have two. So my favorite politician and who, someone who I look up to and just like absolutely love, uh, Deval Patrick, uh, yeah. former, former governor of, uh, of Massachusetts before, before Barack Obama, before all of that, like, that, like that's like that, that's my guy. Um, and, and Hillary Clinton. You know, that's like, I'm, obviously, like, I'm obsessed with her and I just love her and her mind and her politics and who she is and how she presents herself and how she does it. And so I get personally offended when people are like, oh, she's blah, blah, blah. Like, I like those things about her, you know? Yeah. And then I would say if I got to throw in a Republican, uh, the third one is uh, I really like Mitt Romney. So interesting. Me. Interesting me. choice. Yeah. Respectable choice. Interesting yeah. choice. Um, hi, Mook. Oh, we're, we're going to get to them, but hold on one second. I got to, uh, ooh, we'll put you on the spot. Uh -oh. What would what would be your main initiative as a politician? So actually, that's, that's, so honestly, something that I, so one of the things I've been doing the last two years, been back home, is trying to figure out, like, who I, who, like, what's Haima? Who is Haima? What, what, am I, what I personally believe in and do? So I joined the Workforce Investment Board, uh, which is an organization that runs, you know, unemployment and, and, and those sort of things for my city. And I also recently uh, appointed by the mayor, Latoya Cantrell, as a housing commissioner. Um, and so for me, I have been able to see the intersection of, of housing and, and jobs. Uh, and not to sound cliche, uh, but like those are my two things. You know, how do we get people into respectable housing? But how do we get them in, into a job that allows them to pay for that, but allows for them to kind of move to the next, the next phase of their lives and be intentional about it? Okay. Uh, this one <clears throat> is right there. Can you see it? Yeah. Can you talk about a time you had to overcome a huge challenge in working with a candidate? That's a good one. I know I was, I know I was a pain in the ass when I was a candidate. So, no, I, know no, that, I know that for a fact. Well, it's only because you don't listen well, but it's okay. You know what, you know what it was? It wasn't, it was, oh yeah. It's, no, yeah. I, but that's like, that's part of your charm too. You don't fucking listen, but like that's also like you want your congressman to be headstrong. You know, you want your congressman to be someone who's talking and speaking for themselves, not for their consultant, not for their lobbyists. So you know, so no, I would say I'm gonna be honest with you. You know, I I'm not gonna say who the the person was, but somebody who was elected, worked with them after their election, and they at that point after they had been elected still had no fucking clue what they wanted to do. Like no agenda at all, you know. <laughs> and so, like, look, when Mitch when Mitch was mayor and he came, he became mayor in 2010. He came in with like a full agenda, like a full fledged like army of people, you know, all of these things. And I was just taken aback by the fact that this person like did not understand what the job required. Like that's crazy. Right. And so, look, I love politics. Like, I'm a political person, but I think about the day that that person becomes no longer the candidate but the office holder. And if you can't do the job, like if you can't be someone who who can actually like come to work every day and do it, yeah, you, know, like, you shouldn't you shouldn't run, you know. And that's why I tell you that all the time. I go, you would be a good congressman, you know. Like that's like that's the most important part. Being the candidate, yeah, Hillary was a fucking terrible candidate, but she would have been the most amazing president, I think, next to Barack Obama in in, in the history. I think that's, that still. That, that's what's about it. I agree with you there, and I think that is the, for me that's the biggest challenge. Is like I also recognize that I'm a bit of an asshole. And so, probably more than just a bit. I, I think, I think you probably, know. probably more than just a bit. No, but I'm it's, it's like, the, 
the candidate the candidacy is the challenge like i know like yeah. li listen my dad literally had me like no bro you're coming like once I once the basketball stuff kind of faded, it was like no. Your dad, but your dad was a was a natural. Like your dad, like was like that old school politician that like when he touched you on the shoulder, kind of like some the guy who I hope we elect as the next president, Joe Biden. When he when he touched you on the shoulder, is not it, it's it's like he's transferring from you what your hopes are, and so he can go back to D.C. and and fucking do it. Yeah. You know, and so I think that's 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 a big deal. We got another question from, I don't know how to say there. Uh, yeah, I'm just, uh, you, I think you may know this person. Oh, is that, is that, is that what's your most amazing story? Is that Steven Kopechka? Kopechka, I didn't want to. Oh, Steven, are you just joining Steven? I gave you like seven shout outs earlier. So I uh, forget you. Uh, but anyways, like, so Steven, I, this, I, I was in Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay. And it was more embarrassing, like immediately following but back in 2016, like toward the end of the campaign, uh, InfoWars and Worst Limbaugh and all those uh, Republican like fucking psychos were paying people to crash our rallies, crash our events. And so we were in Cincinnati and this, this lady, InfoWars reporter, who was not credentialed, and we were only credentialing press at the time, tried to come into our event and so I, so I go and say, look, can't come. Look, this is, this is my, this is my, I'm the, I'm the NLB all for this, you know, this site. We're not coming, you know, like this is, it's not gonna go any further than this. And so in the process of that, she was filming me. And so I was like this, the whole fucking time this is in the video. And so like this video on the front page of InfoWars where I'm like, where I'm like this. And so it looked like I'm trying to hide something, but I'm not. I just, like, people don't realize, like, it's fucking InfoWars, like, the worst uh, website. I'm not even going to call them news media, the web worst website in the world. But it was embarrassing because there's just a big video on their front page of me doing this. That leads, that's a great point. That's actually good. Before I let you go, that's something I want to, you do it way more than me, and, and, and at this point, definitely better than me. Um, how do you feel? about the way that I think, well, let's reframe this. I think the Tea Party, and I don't mean to make this political, and I, you know. No, I, um, I think the Tea Party has um, poisoned, if you will, our democracy to a point that I don't know that there is a way, like they've opened Pand Pandora's box yeah. and there's no putting the, the, polar, the, polar, the polar, polarization back in the box, right? Yeah. How, and the way in which um, President 45 talks about the media, attempts to discredit the media, and then we have something like Fox News that refuses to acknowledge facts and, you know, reinforces his propaganda. How do we combat that as a democracy, as Look. rational people? How do we, how do we, we can't reverse course, but how do we right the ship? Right. Yeah. Because my biggest concern is that we are we are in a we're now in a country that literally there is it's not it's a tale of two countries, not only in terms of how we see what's actually happening, but then it's it's compounded and exacerbated by what is actually happening, happening to the people that believe what's happening, even though they're poor. Right. And yeah. they're, they're they're not they're not understanding the, the true implication of their choices. Maybe they don't give a fuck. Yeah. That's also no, possible. But, but like, but John, like, look, I, I got I got a slightly different opinion about this than, than, than some of my liberal friends. Because I work I work in, in political communication and in, in, in PR and in, in media relations. And look, I'm not gonna agree with Donald Trump, but for a long time, like the media has been responsible for facilitating, facilitating one, and then perpetuating this fucking narrative that's allowed for the country to be so separated, even before Donald Trump. When, yeah. when, President, when President Obama wore a khaki suit, it wasn't just, uh, you know, the, the Congress that, the Republican Congress that was like, oh man, like he's, the fucking media were, were the ones that were saying Obama was crazy or he was ill-equipped or whatever because he wore a khaki suit. And so look, I'm not, I'm not gonna defend the media. I'm not gonna defend the media ever. You know, you won't have me defend the media. But I do think what Donald Trump does is, you, you hit a point earlier, and, and you know this, like, 
with your district in, in, in particular, you know, we've allowed for people to be so undereducated for so long that when someone like Donald Trump stands in front of them and says the things he says, they potentially think, think it's, it's true. You know, they're like, oh, it's probably true. It's maybe true. When it's very clear that it's not. And so I think even beyond the, the fake news in the media, I think the problem, the only problem that I, I kind of see right now is the education system, the education. Like we just allow people to be so undereducated for so long that it's hard for them to, to really understand. Look, people think politics dictate policy. Policy dictates politics. Because you think about when you're a legislator or a congressperson, what you want to accomplish first. Like, what do you want to happen? I want more people to be insured. Like, that's, you know, that's, that's the thing that we want to, you know, Obama or whatever. I want more people to be insured. That's what you want. The means by, way, by which you get there is completely different. And so it's, it's part politics, but it's mostly policy. And so the policies that you do in the state legislatures, in the city councils, in, in Congress, those are the things that dictate how we actually live our lives. It, far beyond politics, far beyond what Donald Trump says at the podium. You know, it's more important what Mitch McConnell does with those words that Donald Trump says and how he legislates those things uh, for our lives. Yeah, but then you have, and I don't, this is, this is, this is changing from interview to uh, political dialogue between friends. This is, what, this is what I love anyway. This is what everybody wanted. Come on. Yeah, uh, but so um, we got about seven minutes left. So I think my, my counter or my, my reply to that would be you have someone, you know, whether you start with, um, you know, HR 676, which is uh, my father's Medicare for all bill that, you know, has been reintroduced. Um, Wait, I, thought was, I thought it was Bernie Sanders' bill. <laughs> let him tell it. Let, let him tell it. Um, but you start with something like that, and then you take the first step with Obamacare or the uh, Amer uh, ACA, right? Yeah. Affordable Care Act. People don't want that. Why? What is it? What is it? What is it that has gotten folks, in your opinion, so wrapped up in the fact that they, they think, oh, I, I, need, I have, to, have to have freedom of choice. You're, in, you're infringing upon my freedom when really, we're, like, social, liberty, social, secur right? social security yeah. is a socialist program. Yeah. Uh, we, Medicaid, we're, 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 we're Medicaid is a socialist <laughs> program. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, look, so when I was in 2016, went on two or three bus tours with President Clinton. And there was one in particular that is like searing in my, in my memory uh, because it was the most, it was the biggest indication uh, of where we were, we were gonna go. And so we're in Marietta, Ohio, uh, some other random cities I can't remember, but just like Appalachia, you know? And so like mm -hmm. the, the, when Hillary said baskets of deplorables, she was talking about those people. And so we went there and I swear to you, the things that white women were saying about Hillary and why they wouldn't vote for her, you're like, I don't under, what, what do you, like, what do you mean? Like that, you can't, you can't both love yourself and hate yourself. Like, I don't understand what you're saying. Like you're, you're saying that you are a weak person who's not qualified to be president, you know, and, and that's crazy. So that was, that was the one dilemma that we saw, like women and particularly white women did not trust other white women and want Hillary, they make sure strong enough. And then two, because of Obama, a lot of the white men in, in those areas who are racist, and, and that's what they are, I don't know why we kind of pussyfoot around that and like kind of call it anything else. Like there are people in this country who are absolutely racist and who only vote anti-black because they want to vote anti-black. Um, and so that's just, what, that's just what it is. And so when you think about like moving past this, it's hard to move past it if you don't acknowledge the fact, if you got a, if you got a president in the White House who perpetuates the, 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 people, the way people feel, the, the fear they have, the, the, the idea that uh, Mexican-Americans are going to steal their jobs. Like, what, like what jobs are they, are they going to steal from, from middle America, white America? Show me the Excel sheet that shows that. Listen, man, I was in, I was in um, Los Angeles when I was, one of the times when I was living there. And I was, I was taking a drive just on my own down in San Diego and I saw all the strawberry fields. And it was yeah. like, who the fuck do you know 
with yeah. that is like a, a, a regular everyday American. I, I shouldn't say that because that doesn't mean that, you know. No, like, no, are, no, point, no point proof. Like, that's the point. Yeah. But like, y'all aren't about to go, y'all are not about to go in these strawberry, strawberry fields and pick these fucking strawberries. Yeah. And you no, know it. They're now, not if you want to, I, I can give you probably like thousands of those fucking jobs that are available right now that you can go and do that. Like, that's the case. And so you got to think about immigration and civil rights and all those things are not about uh, pragmatism. It's about racism. I and mean, that's just what it is. You know, and you can't overlook that. And if you have people, uh, politicians, you know, like, think, look, I know you and I have a little bit of different pain on this, but you know what? I've, I've kind of moved past this a little bit, John. Why is Kamala Harris, you know, not the nominee right now? Oh, well, that's massage noir all day. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying, listen, my gripes with Kamala Harris doesn't mean that she's unqualified. She's, she's disqualified. Her, her, former policies or her former choices are disqualifying for me but that for doesn't you, mean exactly, exactly. but that doesn't that doesn't yeah, mean right. that that doesn't mean that if she were the nominee that right. like i wouldn't vote for her contrary contrary to the hyperbole that i tweeted yeah. but there were people and look i i, I love i love people judge uh, the former mayor of south Bend, indiana i really do but there's no way ever in this world you're going to tell me that people to judge was more qualified than kamala harris Oh, and people were, and people and this is what I'm trying to prove. People were looking for a reason to vote for the white man. They were looking for a reason to vote for Joe Biden or if it wasn't Joe Biden, the other white man. And so Kamala Harris didn't get that extra look because of that. You know? Yeah. All right, we got two more questions and then I will let you go. We're out of here. So we got one from Morty Turtle, it seems like. Hold on, let me put this up. If any. Do you see it? Oh yeah, what are your plans? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna be the uh, the Zoom manager of the Biden campaign. Okay. No, I'm just I'm just fucking with you. No, I don't I don't know. Like I mean I like I don't I don't know I don't know. Like things are, are weird and they are they're different now and I don't I don't know. I there's a campaign here in uh, in New Orleans. Um, Clint Smith, Morehouse brother. Clint's running. Who's gonna Who's and I'm, I probably just shouldn't be saying this, like, but more than likely. Yes. Uh, Call me. I'll pull up. I'll pull yeah, up. And exactly. what I'm in. So we haven't even like begun to really dig into that. That's going to be a lot of my like time. And so at a certain point, when you do national campaigns and local campaigns, you realize that there are some things that are more consequential. Like that campaign is more consequential to me personally than Joe Biden, even though it's important for Joe Biden to become a nominee. Uh, it's really important for Clint to become judge. Uh, let's see. Give this question. At what moment? I can't even read this. At what moment did you feel like you got to give back to give that you got to give back the most to people? When did you feel the more more Maurice? We can't see the rest of your question. Uh, most successful, yeah. Maurice is a, he's a wordy. So um, no, I think look, it doesn't matter if you have a penny or if you have a crumb. You should try to give people a piece of that. Um, you should try to share your your your. Uh, um, blessings as much as possible. And so I don't think you have to have a lot to give, but I think that once you have enough to impact more than one person, more than just your family, I think for me that is success. Not because it's like charity, it's because I'm now a, a, a bridge for other people. I'm now a, a, a transit for other people to get to where they want to go. All right, we got a minute remaining. How do we get younger people generations to the poll? Tell me if you agree with this. I personally believe, which is why I'm, which is why I'm going to run in the future, that like part of it is like a communication thing. Like, yo, my dad, I didn't get interested in politics directly because of my dad. My dad was a politician, lifelong politician. I had access. I only got interested in politics because I figured out how it affected my life. Yeah. Because I had access, I figured it out earlier. But if you want to get younger people involved in politics, you have to elect people that speak the same language as them. Yeah, uh, thirty seconds. We got thirty seconds left. Yeah, you also have to also like stop telling people they have to come to a fucking building to vote. Like that's that insane. Too. I mean, I'm not. I mean, like, come on. Like, you need to give people access to vote in the way that's more comfortable. Latoya Gantel always says, "Meet people where they are." People don't want to come to polls and actually stand in line and vote anymore. So let's figure out ways for people to be able to vote at their house, at their barber shop, at their fucking school, whatever it is. And so I think if we do that, we'll we'll get people, uh, you know, young people, more involved and and. Eight and likely to vote.